Good morning, church. Good to see everybody. Good to hear everybody's voices in song. If you're visiting, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Hope you feel quickly at home here as our guest. Some years ago, Sherry was shopping at a local mall. She had the kids in tow. It was a long, long time ago as they were smaller at that time. They wanted to purchase something. And during the point of sale, standing there at the counter, she had this sense, something's not right. The cashier fumbled with the credit card a couple times, turning it over in his hand, swiped it once, twice, didn't seem to work, over and over again. At one point, he, he decided to enter it manually, the number. We've all had this happen to us. Uh, but this time felt different to Sherry for some reason. The whole experience was off a little bit. He went back into a back room, he came back out. She basically left the store feeling something isn't good about just what happened and they made the purchase it finally worked they brought it home it was a gift or something for someone but then later on there's really nothing quite like the feeling of being at another store grocery store wanting to buy bread milk and having your card decline for the sum total of four bucks and fifty cents ma'am the card is being declined and then she doesn't have the cash needed to pay for the purchase, so she slinks away, right? Goes straight to the bank. Sure enough, someone had emptied our bank account, and they, had tra- they were able to trace it back to that point of sale that felt a bit off to her. Thankfully, the, the bank and the bank card company filled the, you know, put our money back where it belonged. The Federal Trade Commission estimates that as many as 9 million Americans have their identity stolen each year. I'm sure there are several in this room, given that those statistics, that have experienced this. Just this week, we had another uh, fraudulent charge of 1,062 on one of our credit cards. Someone in Texas had our number and made some purchases that I assume they're now enjoying, right, to the credit card's uh, great demise. Nine million a year experience identity theft and fraudulent uh, use of their cards. And I raise this experience of identity theft because I want us to try to imagine what it would be like to steal God's identity. Can you imagine using God's authority, right? The credit card, for all intents and purposes, the number and the bank account behind it, right, is our purchasing power. It has our authority. It has our power to it. But can you imagine trying to hijack God's identity, using his influence to your advantage, using his authority to your advantage, trying to co-opt his power for your personal gain? I raise this because this is what the third commandment is prohibiting. We're making our way slowly through the Ten Commandments. We're in Deuteronomy 5, one verse this morning, verse 11. It's on the screen. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, from our modern perspective, this commandment can seem a little strange. That's often only because names aren't as socially significant in the 21st century as they were in the ancient world. 
Most often I've heard people interpret this verse, my granny would get on to my granddaddy, for taking the Lord's name in vain. He was a very colorful, he had a lot of colorful language to him. And uh, she rightly condemned his speech, uh, but I think to say that this is a prohibition against uh, swearing of a certain type falls far short of what God has in mind here. You see, people in the ancient world believed that one of the, one <clears throat> that a person's uh, character, destiny, influence, authority is in largest part vested in their name. For this reason, ancient people would take great care in naming their kids. Sherry and I certainly had uh, name preferences for our kids, but it, I wouldn't say that we chose names that would, was a, a commentary on their destiny, per se. Uh, whether positive or negative, there's some in the ancient world who were named, uh, given a name that had a negative comment on the future their parents thought they had. Can you imagine that? There are instances in the Bible of people's names being changed by God as a comment on who they're going to become and how he's going to work in their lives. Abram was named Abraham, his name changed by God after God made a covenant with him and made promises to him about his family and how it would grow. So Abram became Abraham. Jacob became Israel, the nation of Israel, made up of the descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed after he famously wrestled uh, the angel of the Lord all night, lost the wrestling match, but received a new name because he finally submitted to God's purposes in his life. Jacob, not coincidentally, uh, shouldn't be lost on us. The name means deceiver. And in God's work in his life, he he loses uh, that reality and becomes Israel, the one through whom Messiah would come. And in the New Testament, Simon, most often, before he met Jesus, referred to as Simon, but uh, Jesus says, your name will be Peter, gives him a new name, or or addresses him in a new way, because he says, on this rock, Cephas, Peter, the the English translation, on this rock, I'm going to found the church, I'm going to build the church, and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. The church is going to kick in the gates of hell. Peter gets this new name about the role he's to play and who he's going to become and what God's doing in in our lives. Then, of course, there's the name that's above every name. Gabriel told Mary, you're to give your firstborn this name, Jesus, because he will save the people from their sin. It's a name that captures the the person of Christ, the mission of Christ, the purposes of God through the Savior, Jesus. In fact, it's interesting to note Jesus recognized the authority and the power in his name. And there are many verses in the New Testament to point to, but Jesus recognized it in prayer, speaking to the Father, John 17. Holy Father, so Jesus is praying, protect them, he's praying for his apostles, his, the first 11, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me, they're synonymous. Your name and the name you gave me. Just, they're synonymous because if you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. They're one. 
so that they may be one as we're one. Protect them by the name so that they can be one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. He knows he's about to leave them. I kept them safe by that name you gave me. How does a name keep anybody safe? What's Jesus acknowledging here? And what's he asking for? The name of Christ kept the first 11 safe because the name represents the person in all his authority, in all his influence, in all his power. He's saying the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus are inseparable. I kept them safe. You can quickly see why this would be a serious issue in hijacking or misusing the name of God. God wouldn't want his name invoked inappropriately. Do you remember the hesitation that Moses had when God calls him up on the mountain and he's standing before the burning bush and he's being commissioned to go into Egypt to bring the Israelites, Jacob's descendants, out of Egypt? It's on the screen. He says, if I go, he's still not committed yet to going. <laughs> he's in dialogue with God. <laughs> he says, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask, what is his name? I'm willing or I'm considering going. Who do I tell them sent me? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am, which is, uh, speaks to the eternality of God his having ever existed, always existed. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say uh, this to the people of Israel, Yahweh. And so I am, I am and Yahweh are, are derived from the same root. Say that Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is, and then he he tells us what to think of this name. This is my eternal name. It's the name by, by which I clearly state that I've always existed. My name to remember for all generations going forward. The eternality of God. So the Hebrew name Yahweh for God is derived from the verb to be, just like I am is derived from the verb to be. So verse 14, I am, and verse 15, Yahweh, same roots. So special was possessing the name of God that the ancient Jews treated it with the highest respect. A reverence for the name combined with a fear of uh, contravening the third commandment led them never to speak the name. They wouldn't say it. Their reasoning was, well, if we never say it, we'll never we won't misuse it. But again, that falls short of what God has in mind here. He gives them the name Yahweh. This is the name, Moses. Speak this name, Yahweh. Well, ancient Jews, even Orthodox Jews today, will not speak the name Yahweh out loud because they, they don't want to misuse the name. But that's not what God had in mind here. This commandment, this prohibition, is, is not primarily about swearing. And it's not about uh, uh, avoiding speaking it. In fact, in our English Bibles, there is an indication, or English translations, uh, anywhere Lord, all caps is used, it's an attempt by uh, the ancient authors to avoid using Yahweh, and, and so it's translated Adonai, Lord, Master. So 
A, literal, a more literal translation of the third commandment is on the screen. You shall not lift the name of Yahweh to falsehood. It's a more literal rendering of the prohibition against misusing. And you see in this, there's this notion of falsehood. Don't, don't be uh, false in, when you're using my name. Basically, the focus of the commandment is on representing God accurately in the world. God gave his name to Israel, to the Hebrews, to the Jews, and he wants them to represent him well. He wants them to be truthful in word and deed. Because he's truthful in word and deed. There's no shadow in God. If you're familiar with wiring inventories, Myers-Briggs, DISC, PF-16, uh, Enneagram, these wiring inventories often have what are described a shadow side to them. That's when our personalities run amok. Well, there's no shadow side to God. He dwells in unapproachable light. And he's saying, represent me as I am, truthfully, accurately. Remember, Israel was a theocracy at this time, a God-ruled nation, ruled by God's authority, governed by God's law. They're about to enter the promised land, and Moses is getting them ready to take possession of the land. God's focus in this third commandment is that his people entering the kingdom would be citizens that represent the king well. So if you're going to state the commandment in the affirmative rather than the prohibitive, it may be like this, as citizens of my kingdom, represent me accurately. Don't misuse my name. Don't let there be any falsehood when you carry the name Yahweh publicly. You're my people, I've given you my name. Represent me accurately as citizens of this kingdom. That's the third commandment. Moses and all Israel are commissioned as recipients of God's name they're given the authority, they're given the influence, they're given, to a certain extent, power because of this name, this familiarity, this relationship, and he wants them to use his name well, to represent him well. How might the Israelites have been tempted to misuse God's name? How do we avoid doing the same today? Whether in the ancient world or the modern world, we're always tempted to use God's authority and influence and power for personal gain. We're given his name. We're given a relationship with him. Uh, as disciples of Christ, we're, we're ambassadors of Christ in the world. The temptation is that we would take his authority, influence, and power and use it for our own ends. How might this play itself out? I want to give us just a couple examples, all right? And they're prohibitive, like the third commandment is. Avoid dropping God's name for personal gain. In other words, avoid using your, your status as a follower of Jesus to build your own kingdom. We're not to use our relationship with God for personal gain. Specifically, we're not to wield the name of Christ to try and win other people's favor. This seems to be the most tempting, I would guess, in the marketplace. 
if we hear through the grapevine, for example, that someone with whom we're interviewing is also a follower of Jesus, how tempting might it be to use the name of Christ to build a bridge relationally to that person in a way that might obligate them to consider me over other candidates. Or if you're trying to sell a product or you want to enter into a contract and you hear the people that you're, you're approaching in a business setting, that they're believers, how tempting might it be to, to share your faith so that it ingratiates you to them. We need to be careful that we aren't stealing God's identity, authority, hijacking his name, utilizing who he is to build our kingdom. It's perfectly acceptable, even encouraged, to share your spiritual identity with co-workers and neighbors and friends. What we need to guard against is using it to build our kingdoms. The second example of inappropriate name-dropping happens all the time in prayer. We're given the name of Jesus, which is above every name, to close our prayers with in the name of Jesus. Because, in other words, when we say that, we're saying because he has all authority, he has all power, and it's, it's his moral perfection I'm depending on. That's how we come before the throne of God. But sometimes, if we're not careful, we use that name like we might use a, an incantation to cast a spell. We close our prayers with in Jesus' name, hoping that we'll get something that he... He may not want us to have because we're using that name. We're taught to pray, thy kingdom come by Jesus. We're taught to, to pray, hallowed be your name, not Kelly's name. Hallowed be your name. That is, pray. hallowed means to praise, to honor. Too many people treat the name of Jesus with contempt, with misuse. They misuse it by thinking we'll get whatever we want simply because we close our prayers in it. Remember that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, and when you pray, the word count isn't what gets you what you want. Don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they're going to be heard because of their word count, the many words they speak. Why don't do that? Guys, it's not actually our word count that gets us what we need. How do we know that? Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask. God calls us, invites us to pray because prayer is a means he involves us in accomplishing his ends. Prayer is the means that God has ordained or it's a means that God has ordained for accomplishing his purposes. So we're to pray, but it's not the number of words we speak that get us what we want. It's praying in accordance with his will. It's joining him in his purposes. Jesus tells us, don't be like the pagans who think that the number of words they speak gets them what they want. Rest in prayer. Rest in the knowledge that he knows what we need before we even ask. And he has purposes to give us what we need before we even ask. Sometimes we recruit more people to pray because we may think the more people, if we can increase the number of people 
The volume of people praying, then we'll get what we want. There's no strong-arming God in prayer, and it's, it's completely appropriate to ask people to pray for you. But just the sheer number of people isn't going to force God to do something he doesn't want to do either. That's why I spend an increasing amount of time when praying, asking God, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? What are you doing in this situation? And sharing my own feelings. I don't like what's going on in this situation, whatever it may be. How can I pray in accordance with your will? And I'm trying to figure out what God's doing. What are his purposes so that I can move his purposes forward? He knows what I need before I ask. So I don't want to take God's credit card, i.e. the name Jesus, and start swiping it everywhere, thinking that I can take from him something he's not already eager to give me. Another application of hijacking, and I'll state it in the prohibitive, is avoid hijacking God's word. By this, I I mean using God's word in a self-serving manner. Breaking the third commandment includes interpreting God's word to say what we want it to say, rather than simply what it clearly says on any given subject, whatever that might be. Putting words in God's mouth, so to speak, is a dangerous activity, and we should tread very lightly when we open God's word, begin interpreting it and applying it to our lives or to other people's lives in particular. Anytime we offer God's word to others, we should be really careful, which isn't to say we should be inactive. We should just be really careful. Paul says, for this reason, not many of you should stand up and teach. <laughs> and I get, I get it. Those who teach are going to be held to a higher standard. But folks, we all offer God's word to a certain degree. We offer it to our kids. We offer it to our parents. We offer it to our friends. And anytime we offer God's word, anytime we begin to share our perspective on God's word, we should be really careful that we say what God's word says. That we don't hijack his words for our purposes. I'll give you an example. Um, Weddings are often a place where I am regularly tempted to not simply say what it says. And you think weddings should be pretty easy and, and, and weddings are, are joyful occasions and I like doing weddings. And I say virtually the same thing at every wedding because I think weddings are primarily about Christ and not the couple. <laughs> and so I always read from Ephesians 5 that says really, quick, uh, really clearly, wives submit to their husbands in everything. Wow, that's cumbersome. And then it goes on to say, and husbands, lay your life down for your wife just as Christ laid his life down for the church. That's a high bar. And I say it's difficult at weddings because, you know, mixed crowd, some people think the world of the word of God at a wedding, others not too happy about hearing the word submission. Of course, there are those Christian men who have tweaked the interpretation of submission and made it subjugation, and they mistreat their wives and other women. That's one ditch, right, where submission, the call to submit, becomes subjugation and abuse of authority and power in a marriage, even in a community or within a church. It's ugly. It's ungodly. That's a misuse of God's word. 
Then there's the other ditch. Let's try as a church to stay in the middle of the road. The other ditch is pretending submission has no place in a marriage. The other ditch is saying, well, we're not, I don't want the word submission said. I probably just counted myself out of a bunch of weddings, didn't I? (laughs) But we need to wrestle with that. There's virtually no way around the word submission. And so I work really hard to say that submission means something. And that God has in mind a loving household, a loving household relationship in which the wife demonstrates her love for Jesus through humility towards her husband. And the husband shows his love for Jesus by giving his life away to care for his wife. Laying, dying. There's just no way around it, husbands. The bar is much higher for us. We take aim at the word submission culturally because it's not a popular word, but the burden of Ephesians 5 is on the husbands called to give their lives in sacrifice for their their wives, their kids, their family. I'll close. Let me close by pointing out how Christ fulfilled the third commandment. Last week I spent quite a bit of time uh, on a passage in which Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to keep it. Christ was morally perfect. That's what qualified him to give his life, to lay it down for us as our sin sacrifice, his moral perfection. That means he kept the third commandment perfectly. Well, it's interesting to note there's there's no uh, explicit teaching of the third commandment in the New Testament that I could find. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks uh, really clearly about keeping your oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, don't be liars. You make a promise, keep it. There should be no duplicity among the people of God. And that's what we see in Christ. Remember, Jesus said to himself, I am the way, I am the truth. Strange thing to say about yourself. I am the truth. Who dare says that but God? Jesus is saying, when you see me, you've seen the Father, I am the perfect physical representation of God the Father. There's no duplicity in me. There's no lying in me. There's no shadow in me whatsoever. I am the way and the truth and the life. Of course, Paul says that we should be like Christ. It's on the screen, Philippians 2. Well, what is Christ like? He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus had, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't steal God's identity and use it in a self-serving fashion. No, he If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the perfect representation of God in human flesh. I didn't hijack his identity for personal gain. No, I represented him. Call to mind Gethsemane, where he wrestles with, if you're able, take this cup from me. And he's wrestling with that. The burden of going to the cross as a sin sacrifice. Finally, he says, not uh, not my will, but yours be done. And he submits to the Father. That's what Paul's talking about here. He didn't hijack his humanity to do what he wanted with it. No, he submitted to the Father. Folks, we all have authority, influence, and power. Are we using it for 
us? Are we hijacking the authority, influence, and power given to us for our own purposes? Are we using it as Christ used his authority, influence, and power to bring glory to the Father? Have this mindset, the same mindset as Christ had. He made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't steal God's identity, but rather he was in the very nature of God, morally perfect. This is the good news. This is the good news. That Christ's moral perfection is the good news. He perfectly kept the third commandment. He never misused the name of God. He never presented the name Yahweh in falsehood. He represented God perfectly accurately. How are we doing in that? Mixed review at best. Because we're all sinful. The good news is Christ kept the third commandment perfectly and laid down his life for us so that we're trusting in his moral perfection. But we're called to emulate him, which means we're called to follow him in truth. We're called to tell the truth. We're not to be people of duplicity. Have this mindset that was in Christ. Paul makes it really clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We represent Christ. Christ represented God. See how it works? We've been given the spirit by which we live with less and less duplicity. We more and more accurately represent our Savior. We're better and better ambassadors, Lord willing, as each day passes. So I'll sum up the the first three commandments as I close. The first commandment in a prohibitive Uh, in a prohibitive way is have no other gods before me. In an affirmative way, we'd say worship only God, Yahweh. The second commandment, make no images that represent me, make no idols. To state it positively, relate to me personally. Don't relate to me through an idol, because that always uh, results in manipulation. That's what idolatry was about in the ancient world. Making a graven image Uh, by which we thought we could uh, manipulate God. No, relate to me personally. So have no other gods before me. Relate to me personally, not through an idol. Don't misuse my name. Represent me as citizens of the kingdom accurately. When people see you, they should see me. Let me pray for us toward that end. Father, we ask for your mercy on us, and we thank you for your goodness to us. We confess that we are sinners, and at best, well, we need to go on to maturity. We need to tell the truth. We need to keep our word such that when people see us, they increasingly see your Son. Let us be ambassadors so that the world can see Jesus. For his glory and our good, amen.